I realised something was wrong when I found out last year that my dad had a DNR put in place when he was in his care home. So in terms of equipment, uh, a few quick questions. Do you have enough syringe drivers in the NHS to deliver medications to keep people comfortable when they're passing away? I found this quite alarming and thought it would make a really interesting news story. I contacted 28 editors. They decided not to run the story. They never explained why. And the second one is with that, that's to, the syringe drivers deliver medication, particularly things like midazolam and morphine. He was awake at the time, but upon going in that room, he was sedated with midazolam and given morphine. I never woke up. Hello, everyone. That was a clip from the documentary A Good Death, a story of euthanasia in the care industry. Produced by today's guest, Jackie DeVoy. Jackie is a freelance journalist who has spent many years writing for major British newspapers. Around two years ago, she began investigating how a banished euthanasia program had returned to British hospitals, coinciding with the onset of COVID. This program includes greatly increased use of the respiratory depressant drug midazolam. Jackie joins us today to talk about her research and how it casts a different light on the periodic spikes in the death rate we've experienced since April of 2020. She begins by explaining how her involvement in this saga commenced. This particular story about the um, euthanasia in, in hospitals and care homes, and, and invariably in people's homes, um, it began when I was, my dad was in a care home in uh, 2020, he had a stroke in 2019. It was recommended he went into a care home to recover because, because he needed a lot of help. Um, and during that time, um, I found out that he had a DNR in place or a DNAR, a do not resuscitate order in place. So I was quite intrigued by that. And I asked, why, why has he got one of those? And they, and they kind of said, well, pretty much everyone has one in, in here. I was like, well, why is that? And they said, well, you know, if, if, if they kind of stop breathing for whatever reason, um, you know, most of them are very elderly and, and most of them are ill, uh, we'll just let them go, basically. We won't try and resuscitate them. And I said, well, my dad at that point was 76, so he wasn't exactly ancient. And he didn't have any underlying um, disorders or he didn't have any terminal illness. So I said, why would he have to have one in place? And they just basically said, well, he just has to and I said well I don't want him to have one and he doesn't want one and, and you know I want it removed and they said no so I just thought well, this is like while I'm dealing with that this is quite a, an interesting story and probably something that not many people know that you know as soon as someone goes into a care home they've got this slapped on them so um, I contacted uh, the Daily Telegraph and said would you like a story on this because it's actually really interesting it's something not many people know and they said yes so I wrote up the story and they said, yeah, that's great. And then a few days later, I said, when are you going to run it? They said, actually, we're not going to run it now. Um, they never really tell you why. So I said, okay, that's a bit annoying because then it means you don't get paid as well. Um, so, see, through no fault of your own. Um, 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 so I thought, well, I want to get it published because it's a really interesting story. In the story, I spoke to a whistleblower doctor at, um, a London, from a London hospital, a cardiologist. And they said that, uh, yeah, this, this, this is commonplace um, now, suddenly, you know. 
since the pandemic started, that, that anyone coming into hospital that was over 60 uh, would have a DNR put on them. But it, it got worse than that. It was anyone disabled. It was autistic children. It was anyone with mental health issues. Um, the, they told me about um, a young woman who was schizophrenic who came in with some health issue, um, but had a DNR uh, put on her because she was a, because she was schizophrenic. So it was almost like um, anyone who was deemed sort of imperfect in some way, uh, for want of a better word, uh, had a DNR put on them. And um, oh yeah, this, this was where a doctor told me some, some horrendous stories. So I had been, um, I got the article published on an alternative news website, which isn't really what I want to do because I want to get these sort of stories out to the people who don't know about this sort of thing. And they tend to be, um, they tend to be the readers of newspapers and the watchers of TV. Uh, so, but I thought I want to get it out there anyway. And it actually went viral. So loads of people saw it, including David, who then got in touch with me and said, do you want to talk to me in a podcast? about this and I said yeah so we covered the all kinds of subjects including the DNR thing and why these DNRs were being put in place and you know was it a, a means of, of killing off people you know during the pandemic in an attempt to boost the numbers maybe or we were we were just kind of pontificating at that stage about were people being killed off in care homes were people being killed off in hospitals what's going on this is just peculiar so after this was was aired um a man contacted me and he said that his uh, a close relative of his had been killed in hospital just a few months um, previously and so I met up with this guy and uh, he had already started legal proceedings against the people that he believed had murdered his relative and he had compiled loads of evidence and me and him then got in touch with a man called Wayne Smith because we were searching on Twitter was anyone else looking into this stuff guy called Wayne Smith had been researching it since 2013 when his father was killed in his own home by a nurse. Um, and so the three of us started talking and we realised that, you know, Wayne had been researching it for eight years. So he, he'd written three books on the subject as well about the modern day euthanasia that was going on. And he was constantly trying to be silenced and, and banned from, from, you know, the various social media platforms. And... Um, and then um, what happened after that? Oh yeah, I went. I took this man to meet David Icke over on the Isle of Wight, and we spent a day talking about what was going on. And this guy brought all his evidence with him, and it was actually incontrovertible evidence that he had with him, absolute proof that his relative had been murdered in cold blood in hospital. So, um, well, I think it was a hospice actually. Um, not entirely sure, but. Um, and then, and, and, and then people were coming to me after the, the David Icke interview, uh, one by one, people were coming to me saying, that, well, that happened, that's happening to my parent or, or my husband or my wife or whatever. And so many people were coming forward. I just thought, well, they can't all be making it up. It sounds mad, but they cannot all be making it up. And these were genuine, sincere, very distraught, distressed, upset people who felt totally alone and felt that you know, everyone around them was saying that they were mad and that they were imagining things. Um, nobody believed that the NHS could possibly be killing people because the NHS is there to look after you and make you better. Um, 
so all these people are like, you know, piling up around me and with their stories and there were lots of similarities to their stories. There were lots of overlapping, um, yeah, definite similarities. So um, I thought, well, I need to get, these people need to have a voice. They need to have a, a platform. So that's when I decided to go, um, uh, Gareth Ike was doing a, a news show called Right Now via Iconic, which is run by Jamie Ike, his brother. Um, so I was, I was invited to go on that show. So I spoke on that and I brought four people with me as well. Was it five people with me, including Wayne Smith, who is an amazing speaker and just so amazingly well researched. Um, he spoke at length and I think four other people who had loved ones who were killed in hospitals or care homes or hospices. Uh, after that, I went on to Richie Allen's show and brought four people with me as well, different people um, who all spoke. They're all terrified. I was terrified. I hadn't done any, you know, sort of um, radio or TV stuff. Well, I did do some back in the 80s when I was on the team magazine. But apart from that, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't, don't want to go public and, and be, you know, talking on, on, on like, I found it really nerve-wracking, but I just thought we have to do it. And a lot of these people were really nervous as well, but, but, but they felt compelled to talk as well. And it just, we just did more and more stuff like that. And then I, at the same time, I was trying to get the story into the, the mainstream papers, because this was a massive story. So one day last, was it last May? I've lost track of the years now. It's terrible, isn't it? Um, I sent out... Um, a pitch to 28 newspapers and I, don't, I would normally send it separately to each editor but I thought actually do you know what I'm just going to put it all on one email and CC them all in and they're going to be fighting over the story because it's massive so I thought if I if I can show them I'm, I'm sending out to a lot of people there'll be an element of competition they'll all be fighting over it the next morning I woke up and thought oh my god why did I do that my inbox is just going to be overflowing you know with responses and questions and my phone will be ringing all day nothing complete tumbleweed complete silence so after a few days I got a reply from one editor saying he was on holiday I got a reply from another, another editor saying oh they were going to pass it on to someone else and that was about it so I chased it up again Eventually, I, I got um, a few weeks down the line, I got a meeting with one news editor on, on a big um, tabloid and had a four hour meeting with them, brought the initial guy with all the evidence along with me. They, this editor was gobsmacked. At first, he didn't believe it because it sounds mad. After four hours, he was like, wow, wow. Um, and I said, if you can run this story, uh, what page of the paper do you think it would be on and how big would it be and he said it would be headline news and I said well that's what I thought. I then had another meeting with another health editor on, on, a, on, a, on a tabloid. Again same, same reaction this is like so shocking. This bloke did actually know a bit about it and he'd written a little piece about something very very similar about the elderly being killed in hospital in, in July 2020 that was published but it was a small piece and it was quickly swept under the carpet and never followed up on. So I thought he'd be a great person to do it. I said, look, I've looked into it further now. There's loads of stuff going on. And he was like, yeah, yeah, this is amazing. He said, I need to speak to some of the people. I said, well, I've got 16 people at the moment who are willing to speak out, be photographed, be in the paper. You can speak to them all if you want. He spoke to four of them at length. He was on the phone to them for hours. Um, and then he just went quiet. And... 
I, ch- I was chasing him like on a daily basis saying what's happening you know are you, you going to run the story or what and he just like wasn't replying in the end he said look there's just not enough evidence and I said there is loads of evidence I said when you when you wrote your story last year there was not that much evidence but that story was published now we've got mountains of evidence mountains proof of what's going on and testimonies from 16 people who are willing to put their faces in the paper and he just said no no sorry it's not enough evidence can't run it and that's all what's what's interesting about that is i would understand if the year was 2008 and this was the response you were getting because it would sound mad that this was going on and it sounds mad to me to think that there's euthanasia program involuntary euthanasia programs in british hospitals except that it's not new, right? We've, we've been around this merry-go-round before. Yeah. And I think it was actually the Telegraph uh, broke the story in 2009 when whistleblower doctors wrote in and said this wow. Liverpool care pathway has degenerated into a euthanasia program. And then there seems to be this flood of people, articles appearing in the newspaper, people being interviewed on the BBC. There was even a, a famous chef, Rusty, uh, I forget her second name, who broke her her mother out of a care home Um, and of all these harrowing stories appear in the media. And it became generally acknowledged that whether it was intended that way or not, the Liverpool care pathway had become a euthanasia program. There was a government inquiry that concluded everything had gone wrong. Um, I think that wrapped up in 2013, but just when I was reading through the, um, the results of the inquiry in preparation for this, it didn't seem like anything especially robust had been put in place. It seems like the inquiry was saying, it wasn't the pathway itself, it was the interpretation, implementation. Yeah. So it seemed like that that doesn't seem like a very positive conclusion because it means the the structure for um, a euthanasia program to arrive is is really threaded through the entire structure of the NHS. And it seemed yeah. like something that just looking at that, this is going to come back at some point. This is going to go away for a short time. You could really not take much confidence that this had been dealt with properly, properly I would say. Um, so could you maybe just, I wonder if you were aware of that working in the media at the time. If that's yeah, really... I was very aware of that. I mean, the Liverpool Care Pathway was uh, deemed inhumane. Um, it it, it in, included, although it wasn't in writing, it including, included the withdrawal of uh, patients' medications that were maybe helping them. It uh, um, nil by mouth was, was uh, very commonplace where they wouldn't give uh, the patient any, any food or water. And usually, and and they'd put them on end of life drugs, which would combined with the dehydration and eventually the starvation would kill them. Um, And it was deemed inhumane. So it was banned in 2014, but it didn't really stop. When you speak to people, um, you know, from that period to present day, it's it's still been going on. And this is one of the issues that I've had with um, the editors on the papers when I've been, you know, trying to convince them that this is, um, and this was another editor on a broadsheet that I was talking to, toing and froing, toing and froing. And in the end, they just kind of said, well, it's not really a story. And I said, well, what do you mean? And, and, and she said, well, it's been, it goes on all the time in hospitals and care homes. And I said, yes, that's the story. People are being murdered in hospitals and care homes all the time, every day. The actual figure that my researcher, Stuart Wilkie, who was in, the, in my documentary, um, uh, discovered is I think 485 people a day are being euthanized in, in the UK. Um, so that's every day, uh, you know, of every month of every year. Uh, these so thousands of people are being killed every year. 
and they just give it a different name. They, they just say it's, it's end of life care pathway, um, but it's not called the Liverpool care pathway anymore, but it's identical. But then in, in 2020, uh, with, with, with the dawn of COVID, um, they brought in this protocol back. So anyone that went into hospital who was presenting a bit COVID-y, um, they put them on this pathway, which involved um, initially a 2.5 milligram um, dose of midazolam, which is used to ease agitation, apparently. So if the person's agitated, and then they put them on morphine with that, usually on a syringe drive there, and then within days the person will be dead. Um, because but they were used, they were saying it was a treatment for COVID, and back in April 2020, there was a massive order put in um, by Matt Hancock, who was the health secretary back then, uh, for a two years supply, a two years supply of midazolam. Um, ordered from a, a factory in France by, via a distributor in, in um, England. So, um, and there's this video which I've included in, uh, in my film uh, of Matt Hancock talking to Dr. Luke Evans about this, about this order of midazolam being brought in and how it was going to be used. Now that, that two year supply was used up in nine months. Um, and it coincides, you know, the administration of it coincides with that initial first wave, the spike of COVID deaths in care homes and hospitals of, of the elderly mainly. So then you, you start to ask questions. You're like, well, was it actually COVID or was it this medication? Oh, okay, if I played devil's advocate on that for a moment, I could yeah. say there's two ways of looking at that. Okay, either there's a massive spike in the deaths because of COVID and in correlation of that, midazolam is used to help people pass on so or you could say well there's a massive spike in death and midazolam is a respiratory suppressant drug so there is a sort of inescapable logic to your point that if you can demonstrate vastly more midazolam was used over a certain period and midazolam is a respiratory suppressant which it is i, was, I mean that was kind of shocking to me when i went looking and saw the, the official yeah. documents on it and oh there it is and covid is a disease that affects the lungs it's a suppressing people's ability to breathe and you use a respiratory depressant. Yeah. There's a sort of inescapable logic that it's going to raise the death rate. I would find it hard to think how to skip out of that one. So, um, can, can, and that's what we see. We see f from April through to June of 2020, this massive spike yeah. in the death rate. And, um, of course it's attributed to COVID, but then you see, so for example, the book virus mania, um, Dr. Sam Bailey is the, the kind of public face of it, and she's done a video yeah. presentation showing how the strange things of this. Like, if you look at Spain and Portugal, Spain has a massive death spike. Portugal really has nothing. And um, the contention of the authors of that book is that a, a national border can't stop a virus. It's not yeah. just that it got to Portugal later, for example. Yeah. And they, they suggest it's um, different drugs programs being rolled out in these countries. And they particularly yeah. point to hydroxychloroquine and very, very high doses, toxic doses of that being administered. So then, that's what I found. Knowing that, I found that intriguing about your, yours saying midazolam uh, yeah. being deployed at the same time. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, that, that's um, yeah, very good point. So, like you say, um, it's a midazolam is a, is a respiratory suppressant. If if you use it concomitantly with morphine, then that suppresses the respiratory system further. Um, in fact, those two drugs shouldn't be used together. You know that there, there is um, that there are guidelines on that. Um, 
which tell you that you're not supposed to use them together because they can cause death um, and definitely respiratory failure leading to death. And, and like, like you said, it suppresses the um, respiratory system in that you might go down to 12 breaths in a minute and then, you know, if they give you more of the drug, which, which is happening if it's on a syringe driver, then your breaths might go down to six breaths a minute and they might go down to three breaths a minute. And because you're not breathing, um, all this water is, that you would naturally breathe out and droplets is accumulating in your lungs. So basically you drown. It's a horrible, horrible death. But the use of the midazolam, I mean, midazolam is used in um, many states in, in America for executions. And they use midazolam to keep, to keep the person sedated, basically. But then they're not asleep. They're, they're awake. They just can't move or they can't speak. Um, and if it's not, if they're in any kind of pain, if they're not given a, an analgesic, they will feel that pain. Midazolam isn't an analgesic. So they give morphine, for executions, they give morphine with midazolam. And as little as 10 milligrams has been enough in an execution to kill someone. But there have been horrible, horrible instances where the deaths have taken like two hours and they have to keep upping the dose, upping the dose. And the person, although they look calm and still, they're drowning and also it feels like their brain is on fire apparently. So there are, there are lots of prisoners on death row. If given the choice, they choose the electric chair over the, over the, um, the, the lethal injection because it's, it's, it's nicer, <laughs> it's less, less awful. Um, there's been yeah, many cases of, of, of prolonged torture and death. It is torture, what is happening there. Um, so they've banned the use of, of, of these drugs in executions in a lot of the states because they're inhumane. Yet here in the UK and other countries, they're using the same method to kill elderly people. You know, it's too inhumane for a big rapist or murderer on death row, but it's fine to use on our, on our grandparents and parents, husbands and wives. So, um, now, a lot of people would argue, including this editor on, on the broadsheet that I was telling you about, that it's not a story because it's been happening for years. It happens all the time. And, and it's morally the right thing to do. If someone's really old, if they're, if they're very ill, if they're terminally ill, if they're in terrible, terrible pain, you know, you or I might say, yeah, I'll have some of those drugs. But the fact of the matter is, firstly, a lot of the people I've spoken to, their loved ones weren't old. They weren't terminally ill and they weren't in pain. The youngest one, um, I've, uh, I've been talking to this woman, her husband was killed in November, because I, I, I'm still communicating with people every day, even though I finished doing the documentary, because, because people are still coming to me after seeing the documentary. Her husband was killed in November, he was 54. He went in for something completely unrelated to, to he wasn't terminally ill, and he wasn't in terrible pain and um, they killed him within a couple of days and she knows that and she's actually um, gone to the police with it and she's having a meeting on Friday with the police um, but I've known a lot of people who've gone to the police over it and the, either the police don't want to know or, or they kind of start investigating it and then stop or they spend some time investigating it and then say actually we finished the investigations now there's nothing to see here it's almost as if the police and the NHS doctors and nurses and the coroners, they all cover for each other. 
And this is what is quite apparent speaking to people that I know who've gone to the police. Um, yeah, and the, and the other thing is, whether you think it's morally right or wrong, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, that's totally irrelevant because it's illegal. In the UK, euthanasia, voluntary or involuntary, is punishable by life in prison because it's murder. It's classed as murder. It is murder. And if you assisted suicide, if you help someone to kill themselves, you can get up to 14 years in jail for that under current laws. Um, euthanasia, voluntary or involuntary, is covered by the mur 1961 murder law. Um, there's no separate laws for euthanasia. You don't get a lesser sentence because you've you, because someone said, oh, can you kill me? And you say, oh, okay, then um, you're still guilty of murder. And people don't seem to realize this. So these editors are saying to me, but it's fine, you know, because, because it's, it's been happening. And yes, it has been happening. People, people, people have been illegally killed. They've been murdered in hospital for decades using this cocktail of lethal drugs, which is a hideous way to go. It's an absolutely hideous way to die. But because the person looks calm on the surface, it's, it's deemed acceptable. The, um, I've been with people who've been very, very old and, and died in hospital. The interviews on your documentary, uh, what family members are describing was nothing like my experience. They were talking about being with a parent who might be much younger than that and was actively communicating, talking to them mm. at a time they were being denied food and water. It, it just seemed unbelievable if it wasn't so believable, if you know what I mean, because it, it's a very hard documentary to watch either mm. through sadness or anger that it's going to provoke. I had to pause it um, several times over on the first run through, but it's, it's completely different. It's like if you'd have put a call out for people who had maybe seen a flying saucer or something, you people might call seeing mm. goodness knows what in the sky, but this isn't something people mess around with. You know, people aren't doing this for, for fun or because they want to engage in conspiracy theorizing. These are people mm. who have like become convinced from their own perception that yeah. their loved ones have been murdered in hospital. Yeah, I mean, I've said to people, when I've talked about the documentary before it was released, people were like, oh, don't be so ridiculous. Of course, that's not happening. I said, all you need to do is watch the documentary when it comes out. And by the end of it, you will know that these people are telling the truth and they're not alone. And I initially interviewed 12 people for the documentary, but we realised we couldn't fit it all into like a 65-minute documentary the way we wanted to present it. So we ended up with six uh, people. And... Um, I've, I've seen it obviously over and over and over hundreds and hundreds of times because I was helping with the editing. Um, but even now there are certain points every single time I get choked up watching it, you know, or even thinking about it. Um, every single time. And it, and it's like, and it's because it's, it's so, it's real. And I, the, the only criticisms I've had of it since it was released on December the 5th are by people who haven't seen it. So, um, there's been, there's, there was a BBC um, journalist uh, called Reese Williams who wrote a hit piece on it, clearly hadn't watched it, said it was a conspiracy movie made by David Icke. David Icke had nothing to do with the making of this, of this documentary. It's a, it's a documentary film, it's not a movie, and it's not a conspiracy movie. Um, and it's, a, um, it's got um, the unfounded claims that the NHS are killing people. They're not unfounded. We've got, we've got masses of evidence, masses of evidence that, that this is what is happening. Um, and a criticism from some, per, some peculiar person um, 
who said that they were all actors, people in it were actors, that I'd written a script and they were reading off a script. I'll tell you what, if they're actors, they all deserve Oscars because they are the best actors in the world. I've never seen such good actors. Yeah, well, that's pretty funny. I mean, you have to say that either they're like, that they're clearly authentic. I mean, you could say they're, or maybe they're all mistaken, but, yeah. you know, they're, they're clearly, yeah, I mean, every, friends of mine who also saw the documentary had the same experience of having to pause it at times going through to yeah. vent their... I didn't, have to, I didn't have to prompt them at all. What I did, I went to meet them, I sat, um, I kind of vaguely knew, knew the outline of their stories, so I, I, but and most of them I hadn't met before, I just had spoken to them on the phone, and um, and I let them just talk. And when you've been through something like that, you want to talk. Yeah. And you remember every single detail. You remember what day it was, what time it was, down to the minute. You remember everything. And you can tell the story a thousand times and it will be the same because it's true. And you can't do that if you're lying. Um, and um, what I started to notice was, was like, hang on, didn't so-and-so say that? But by the time I'd done all uh, six of the interviews, there were so many similarities and crossovers that, that me and the editor were able to break it down into sections like we did, you know, nil by mouth, you know. And there were so many things that we didn't include, that, you know, the, the, the weird um, attitudes and behaviours of the nurses and the medics. Um, we didn't include the fact that, that most of them were put in a separate side room, you know. There, there were so many similarities. Even the words, being, I asked every, because I played devil's advocate like you a lot of the time. And... Um, one of the things I asked them is like, yeah, but why would they be doing this? And every single one of these these people said money. They'd worked it all out. Mm. They, they had worked. They said it's all about money. These people, these patients, these relatives of theirs weren't seen as human beings. They were seen seen as as, as numbers. It was quite interesting in the Liverpool Care Pathways report. Actually, it was the the nurses that were thrown under the bus rather than the pathway itself. Um, saying because nurses are like revered well they were for a little bit i think that you know now they're not taking some of them aren't taking the vaccination they're back to it's more yeah. questionable but we we're all outside clapping for them for a while but in the in the liverpool care pathways report um there was talk of callous nurses not caring whether people lived or died and all sorts on, on a substantial scale they were really the ones um, where a lot of the blame was placed upon them yeah. for what had happened i was quite shocked at that well it's actually true I mean, obviously not all nurses and doctors are, are, are callous, cruel murderers, but it seems a large percentage are. And it, it, and it begs the question, um, are they employing these psychopaths because they've got these tendencies? Or do the people go into the job with all, all best intentions but end up um, somehow succumbing to the, these weird protocols? I think there's, there's lots of different um, answers to that particular question and also lots of different types of people working in that environment. So you do get a percentage of psychopaths working. I mean, if you think about it, if you're a paedophile, you're going to go and get a job working with children, aren't you? If you're a power-hungry psychopath who wants to play God, you're probably going to go and get yourself a job in a hospital, but, you know, or train to be a doctor. I'm not saying all doctors and nurses are like that, because obviously that's not true. But people that type of person will be drawn to that, that type of job. So you've already got a, a certain percentage of people working in hospitals who are like that. They don't care if people live or die, even though they're masquerading as, as, as healers and, and, and what have you. Um, and, but then you'll get a percentage of people working in that environment who are a bit stupid and they just do as they're told. Um, in a lot of um, industries, people are like that. You know, they're just 
do as they're told. They're following orders. There's a lot of order, order followers in these sort of jobs. Um, you get nurses who won't question the doctors. You get nurses who think, hang on, that's a bit weird. That's not going to help the person. That's going to make them worse. But they don't question it because the, doc the man in the white coat has told them to do it. And in the same way, you've got the doctors who have been told by the men in the suits, the bureaucrats, this is the new protocol, this is what you've got to follow, and they do it unquestioningly. Um, the people who do speak out um, tend to pay for it, they lose their jobs or, or they're vilified in, in some way or another. Um, and and, and then, then you've got all the in-betweens as well, the people who are, oh, I don't know, that doesn't sound right, but I'll do it anyway, or should I ask a question? You know, I mean, there's been so many people speaking out over the last two years, but they get silenced, you know. Mm. We've, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of videos of nurses and doctors speaking out, and then suddenly they're not speaking out anymore. Well, your documentary, it starts with this whistleblower doctor that you speak to, and then it focuses on family members. Um, have you had more communication with medical professionals? Or any um, response from them? Well, um, no, but I haven't actually sought that out. Now, a lot of people have said to me that, that they like the documentary, but totally biased because we didn't get any opinions from the police, the coroners, the doctors, the medics. Now, when we were when we were working out how to present the documentary, um, I wanted it to be a platform for these people and their stories, um, and for them to tell the stories that they've not been able to tell and for people to listen to them and then make up their mind about, about. I mean, if, if, you, if you're bringing in doctors, coroners, nurses, um, police, whatever, that, that becomes a different kind of documentary. I'd like to do that documentary as well. I'd mm -hmm. love to yeah. do that. But it's a very different sort of documentary and we wouldn't have had much space for the, for the people telling their stories. But I wanted to like focus the whole film around these people and their stories so people can just watch and then make up their own mind at the end of it. And what have things been like since the production of the documentary? What, and what does the, uh, the future look like in terms of continued research or action, legal action, media action, well, otherwise? Yeah, we've, we've still, uh, you know, Matt Hancock, Luke Evans, they've still not explained how the two years supply of midazolam disappeared in nine months. Um, they will just refuse to answer anything like that. Um, the papers have refused to run the story, even though they've said to me it would be a headline story, story of the decade. Um, they've refused to run it and won't explain why. I actually contacted them all again a couple of months ago and said, um, I was just angry. And I, I said, I've finished doing the documentary now, but um, you still need to run this story. And so I was sending, sending them links to the documentary so they could watch it. Um, two of them claimed to watch it. And then... Um, and one of them said, oh, there's just, yeah, I saw the documentary, but there's not, just, these are just people's stories. There's not enough evidence. I wrote back and said, I have all the evidence here if you want to go through it with me. I've got all the evidence to back up these stories and then silence again. So I, I said to all these 28 editors again, the fact that you've not run this story, in the last six months, thousands more people have been killed um, because you've refused to, you know, alert the public to this. I'm sure if the public knew what was going on, there would be absolute uproar and outrage. And I said, because you've refused to run this story, you have blood on your hands now. You, you have blood on your hands. You, the, you, the editor, the news editor, or whoever on this paper, or the health editor, um, this is your fault, you know, because you're refusing to run this story. But I actually asked a lot of editors, are you not allowed to run this story? Has someone told you you're not allowed? And they said, no, what do you mean? We're not censored, we can run whatever stories you like. I don't think even, I don't think that these editors, the, 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 the lower 
echelon sort of editors know they're being censored, they will go, yeah, we'll have this story. Then they pass it on to their, their boss and their boss says, oh, brilliant, they pass it on. By the time it gets to the top, it's, it's only the editor that knows that they can't run this story. So the editor will then pass the message down, no, we're not running it, you know, and give an excuse, we'll just say, well, no, we're not running it. Um, that's, that's my theory, because I do believe that the editors I speak to truly believe that they're not being censored. Yeah, um, oh, that's a fascinating thing, and it's understanding how censorship arises and people yeah. become complicit in it without realising that they are, or not recognising that if they were the kind of person that asked the wrong kind of questions, they would never be in that position in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a, a Zoom meeting with an investigations editor on one broadsheet and the whistleblower doctor that I spoke to. The whistleblower doctor decided to actually show their face and speak out. And um, we must have been, the meeting must have been two hours long. It was long anyway. And uh, the investigations editor was taking loads of notes. Nothing ever came of that. Nothing. Never got back to me. Um, so just like, you know, I think that investigations editor generally genuinely thought it was a good story and would run something on it. But by the time they pass it on to, to, their, to, the, to their editor and then, then the editor-in-chief and, and that higher up, it, it, somewhere along the line it gets censored and it gets dropped. And me as a freelance journalist right at the bottom um, of the pile, I don't even get told, you know, why. Um, they don't even know why half the time. I mean, the, the, the tabloid editor, the first one that I had the four-hour meeting with, his excuse in the end was, oh, I just don't really have enough time to deal with it. And it was like, oh, what, because you're busy dealing with, with putting out propaganda about COVID, you know, instead. It's like, but that's just an excuse. Whether they, I don't know, it, it's very frustrating. It's banging your head against a brick wall. And since the documentary came out, um, we did, we, do you know all about Anna Redfern and Cinema and Co? No. Down in Swansea, there's this lady called Anna Redfern, who um, she runs a small cinema, and she was told um, that she had to, because it's in Wales, but that she had to get uh, people coming in to, to show their vaccine passports, and she, she's very against that, and said no, she wasn't going to do that. So the council came to her premises and said, and started picking holes in, oh, it's not very hygienic, it's not proper, you know, social distancing, blah, blah, blah and said, you need to be shut down. And she said, no, I'm not shutting down. This is my living. I'm a single mum. This, this is the way I feed my children. You know, I'm not closing down my business. You're not asking anyone else to do that in Swansea. So um, she then had to uh, go to court and they, they fined her and ordered her to be shut down. Uh, they actually went round and um, bolted the shutters down. She came along with friends and, and unbolted it, you know, angle grinders or have you, whatever he is, I don't know, and continued to trade. And then she was taken back to court again, fined 15,000 pounds and told if she opened up again, she'd actually have to go to jail. Um, so this was just before Christmas. So, and she's looking after her mother at the moment who, who is um, dying, she's got cancer. And so she just thought, oh, do you know what? Okay, fine, I'll stay shut, you know, over the Christmas period. But anyway, on the 5th of December, she, I mean, she'd been interviewed by, by Gareth Icon right now. And, and she offered to host at the premiere of the, of the film at her cinema. This is on the 5th of December before she was finally shut down. So we all went down there and, um, and it was fantastic. You know, there were all the families there, friends of the families. Um, it's only a small cinema, but 
it was pretty full. Um, we all watched we all watched the documentary and 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 it was a really pleasant evening, although you know, you know very sad as well, bittersweet really to see you know how sad all these families were. Um, anyway, I think it was was at the start of last week. Um, a BBC journalist did a hit piece on this. Um, it was kind of focusing on Anna and 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 you know, her, her misdemeanors, and uh, but also saying and she hosted this um, David Icke's conspiracy latest mm. conspiracy movie with all these unfounded claims. Now this person, Reese Williams, the journalist who wrote the piece, clearly hadn't watched it. He had no idea. Later in the piece, he said the film was made by the Ike brothers. So he was like contradicting himself left, right and centre. It was full of lies, errors, misinformation um, and, and just nonsense. It was just, he said, and of course, you know, wheeled out the old hackney David Ike who thinks the Queen's a lizard and, you know, who's a big conspiracy theorist who used to be a footballer and, and thinks he's the son of God. It's like, seriously, you know, you're weeding out this stuff from the 1980s which has been debunked over and over again you know of, of the truth of the matter um and uh, I, I was like really I, I don't normally get angry about that kind of thing but i just thought this is just pathetic journalism and then i thought oh well i don't know i'll, I'll send him an email so i sent the, the, the journalist an email he didn't reply then uh, the next day it's in the daily mail it's just a copycat piece they've just they've just copied the bbc piece without investigating any further, without any additional reporting, without getting quotes. That's the other thing it said in the piece, that they'd um, tried to contact the, the makers of the film uh, but didn't get a response. There's three people involved in the making of the film, me, Jamie, and the editor, Gabriel. And um, none of us have been contacted. None, we hadn't been phoned. So that was a blatant lie. So the, the mail, the mail online just, just regurgitated this article and put another journalist's name on it. This is what they do. It's called, it used to be called byline banditry, you know, when you take someone else's work and put your name on it. Um, and then it was in the Metro as well, exactly the same, regurgitated nonsense with another journalist's name on it. And so I, I've written to um, most of the people concerned. I also wrote to uh, Martin Clark, who's recently stepped down as the editor of the Mail Online. I think he's still involved in some advisory capacity or something. So I wrote to him as well, saying congratulations on your resignation. I feel like bloody resigning myself, you know, don't blame you. Um, and just saying to him about the appalling state and, uh, of journalism at the moment and how I, I just don't want to be associated. I, I feel in a way I'm burning my bridges because I don't want to be associated with these people anymore because they're, I don't want to say they're idiots because they're not idiots, but they're, they're certainly acting like idiots. And I don't know if it's because they are genuinely ignorant of what's going on or whether they're pretending to be. I do get the feeling that some of these seemingly intelligent editors are being deliberately obtuse, like the editor saying to me, it's not a story, it happens all the time. And even though I'm saying, yes, murder is happening all the time, they're murdering people in hospital and have been for decades and they're ramping it up now and they're saying it's because of COVID, there's a story. And they're like, oh, I can't see it myself. And it's like, oh my God, are you actually stupid? Has this substantially shifted your sense of how the media and wider society, government institutions work? You mentioned that you had done some work of David Icke back in 2013. So evidently you must have been quite open to an alternative worldview from, yeah. from back then. But how, does that, how, did that, how has that shifted for you? And did you ever expect to be 
making documentaries in connection with uh, David Icke's son and sort of was that a, a departure you didn't expect? No, when I first saw David Icke on the television on the Terry Wogan show back in I think it was the early nineties, I didn't think oh no, one day I'll be working with that man. No, um, but I've always been I've always been a very questioning person. I mean, since I was a child, when I was seven years old, and the, and the, the, the Apollo Eleven moon landing thing occurred, um, I remember as a child just sitting, going, huh? looking at the moon, and, going, huh? and then, but my, then my dad, my dad was only um, eighteen years older than me, so we were very close, um, and my dad just said, "No one's gone to the moon," and I'm like, "I don't think so," and he said, "Just look at it critically, you know, think about it sensibly," and so I've always asked questions. In fact, um, my dad died in, in um, September, sadly. One of the last things he said to me is, you're asking too many questions. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but that's your fault, Dad. I was asking about how he felt and, you know, talking about all sorts mm. of stuff. Um, and he wasn't very well. He, he said too many questions. <laughs> or I'll stop now. But, yeah, so I've always been encouraged to question everything. And I always encourage other people to do that. And it always amazes and surprises me how so few people do do that, how they just accept I remember a friend of mine um, many years ago, I was like, God, I wonder why that is. And God, I, I'm going to look into that. And she's like, why are you like that? Why can't you just leave it? You know, why do you have to pull everything apart and wonder and investigate? And I went, oh, I don't know. It's just the way I am. And, but a lot of people aren't like that. A lot mm. of people are like, they, they can't be bothered. They've got too many other things going on in their life. I mean, I have as well, but... I'm still, I'm still constantly amazed going, how can you not be interested in that? How can you not be interested in, you know, what's going on at the moment with the, you know, but it's easier for people to just accept it because if they start questioning it, if they find out that something's not true, then their whole world, their whole worldview will be turned on its head. They, they might have to make changes in their life. They might have to leave their partner. They might have to change their job. And most people aren't equipped or able to do that for, for whatever reason. So I do understand why people are fearful about looking into these things and they'd rather just go with the flow. And it must be nice sometimes, actually, to be like that. Yeah, sure <laughs> it is. <laughs> it must be really nice just to be bobbing, almost like being a baby, you know, just bobbing along and letting other people do the thinking for you. It must be quite pleasant, but it's, um, I've never been like that. So I don't really know for sure. Okay. Maybe tell people where they can see the documentary. And I'll link to it below. Yeah, it's on it's on iconic.com. So you go to iconic.com and then you can sign up for a, a free seven day trial and you can watch all their amazing content there. They're all original, amazing films. It's like a kind of alternative Netflix. Because, you know, you go on Netflix, well, I don't go on Netflix, but I have been on Netflix, and you think, oh, God, I don't watch any of that nonsense. But this, when you go on, you want to watch everything, you know. So uh, if you decide you don't like it, you can, you can unsign after, um, is that the right word? Unsign. After, after seven days, uh, unregister or whatever. Uh, but if you like it, um, you can pay the, a monthly subscription, which I think is not much more than Netflix or the same. I don't know the exact amount, about £10 a month, something like that. Um, and um and it's it's well worth it it's really good but you but you can watch a few things free if you just sign up for the, the trial period yeah and i think if for anyone trying to understand the the puzzle of what's happened over the past couple of years for the death rates and what's going on in society a good death is an essential piece of that puzzle as well as a harrowing documentary uh, but a very meaningful documentary yeah. on a personal level too people's mm -hmm. uh, journeys through 
the kind of tragedies they've gone through. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the story continues. They just put in another order from the Basel, I mean, at the end of November for another two years' supply. So it's, it's, they're going to do exactly the same this year. I mean, there have been rumours, and I haven't actually looked into it properly yet, that, that the next stage is they're going to be using it on children. So children coming into hospital with any kind of pre- presenting with any kind of um, COVID-like symptoms, they're going to start killing the children. Because a lot of people believe that this is a massive, you know, well, that COVID is a Trojan horse to bring in the New World Order and it's a massive depopulation exercise. And if you were, I always say, if you were an evil overlord and you wanted to depopulate, what are you going to do? First, you're going to kill off the old people and that will save you billions of pounds as well. Um, and the next thing you need to do is uh, stop babies being born. Um, a, lot of, a lot of changes in lo- laws recently are kind of angled towards doing that. And, you know, that it's said that these new um, jabs, COVID jabs, are, will cause infertility. There's all, a, a lot of things that are going on at the moment points towards reducing the population. And it's something that, that um, eugenicists such as Stanley Johnson, Boris's dad, and Boris Johnson, and, and hundreds of others have talked about quite openly for decades about wanting to reduce the population. And a lot of people I speak to go, oh yeah, that's a really good idea. There are too many people on the planet. I said, yeah, but there's, there's only a couple of ways of reducing the population. One, making people infertile, and two, killing people who are already here. Neither of those are ethical or, or moral in any way. And it's only when you say that to people, people are, oh yeah, I'm all full depopulation. It's like, how are you going to implement that? You know, how, how are you going to orchestrate that? And it's only when they think about it, they go, oh yeah, yeah, that's not very nice, is it? Mm. And it's like, it's like, just think, people. They just, they just hear something and think it's a good idea and parrot it, go around parroting it. And it's, um, yeah, they, and they don't like it when, when, when you try and make them think. Because they're not used to thinking. They don't want to think. And in some ways, I don't blame them. Because a lot of the things that we need to think about are really, really horrible. Yeah, I think it's become really apparent over the past couple of years that there's a large segment of society that really rejects any inquiry into the nature of how the world is working. Yeah. Steadfastly rejected. We've been forced to face that over the past two years. You can't yeah. pretend that if a a crisis arose that they would think about these things because it's yeah. the, the crisis has arisen and they haven't. Yeah, they don't realize that the crisis is here. They're thinking, Oh, you know, if, if we just comply, we just behave, everything's going to get better. They don't understand that the compliance is the problem, yeah, and that, that non acquiescence is, is the answer in the way forward. They don't understand that they, they're allowed not to comply, yeah, that's the irony of it. So, um yeah, so they just carry on thinking, oh, if, we, if we're good children, if everything will be all right in the end. They don't understand that. And they explain it to a lot of people, but you can see it just going right over their head and looking at me, thinking, oh, God, here she goes again, you know, <laughs> ranting on. I mean, I try not to rant at people. And I have now developed um, a kind of a, a second sense of um, I can spot people who are open to things and people who aren't. And... The people who aren't, you might as well just save your breath to cool your porridge, as my mum used to say, because you're wasting it on them. But I'm lucky to be able to tell now who's open and who's not. 
and I must say more and more people are, are waking up and are open to listening which is good but um, there's still a lot who aren't so we still have to keep pressing ahead and and spreading the word and um, doing what we can I always say to people use whatever little skill or talent you've got you know to, to spread the word and the truth um, people go oh yeah I can't get to the protests you don't have to go to the protests write a song you know make a poster make some flyers whatever whatever your talent is just use it if everyone did one little thing like that the world would be a better place and this nonsense would come to an end thank you for listening everyone i'll link to the documentary below as jackie mentioned you can watch it by signing up for a free trial i'll also link to some further information on these subjects we've discussed the liverpool care pathway and the presentation i mentioned by dr sam bailey on what caused the spike in the death rate. I'll now play us out with a further clip from A Good Death. He was awake at the time, but upon going in that room, he was sedated with midazolam and given morphine. I never woke up. T-34 is a cocktail of uh, medication drip feeding under the skin and uh, now I know that uh, was given to kill her as quickly as possible. The end of life is really the most crucial time in your life. Madaslam weaponizes this end of life so-called care. So you're saying voluntary euthanasia is assisted dying? Yes. And euthanasia is... Where can well, that happen it, without it, it, the it, patient's it, it, consent though? It's happening all over the country um, every single day of, of the year. I spoke to her and I said, you're right, darling. She said, get me out, get a wheelchair and get me out of this hospital now. She said, they're trying to kill me. She was crying, begging for help. All medication stopped, no nutrition. I said, how do you feel on a one to ten? She said, I don't know. I've got to keep my wits about me because I'm dealing with these silly people. These stories needed to be heard and I realised they'd be better captured on film than on paper.